We are in this series that if you are new and you're just joining us, uh, we're, we're grateful that you are here. You're coming right into the middle of this series where we're exploring core Christianity. Really, what are the doctrines that Christians believe? What are the beliefs? What is it that Christians have believed for thousands of years? What does it mean to be a Christian? That's, that's what we've been exploring together. The things that the church, the things that Jesus' people have believed throughout time and place and country and ethnicity and wherever you are, this is what Christians believe. And, and we want to explore this so that if you are a Christian, you are able to be more deeply formed in your faith so that you would really know here is what I believe and it would go levels deeper into your heart. And if you're not a Christian, it's a great time to really explore. And if, and if you're just joining today for the first time, uh, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the previous ones. But that way, you're able to really know what is it that Christianity is? What, what are these things? It's, it's a really important thing if you're exploring faith or exploring God or spirituality to actually know what something teaches. And so we have been going through this series together and today, we are going to talk about how does somebody become a Christian? And, the, and let, me, let me say it this way. We, we've talked about who Jesus is the last few weeks. We've talked about who Jesus is. We've talked about what Jesus did. But how does who Jesus is and what Jesus did, how does that come to someone's life? Sometimes theologians will call this the doctrine of the application of redemption. So you know who Jesus is, you, you know what he did, but how does that actually get to you? How does it come into someone's life? If you're not a Christian, this is obviously an important question to know, how does someone become a Christian if I'm interested in that? If you are a Christian, you might think, oh, it doesn't matter, I'm already a Christian. I don't need to know how I got here. But actually knowing your history is really important. We know this in other realms of life. To know how you got to where you are is really important. If you are in, uh, in marriage conflict or when people come in for marriage counseling, it's really important to know how did we get where we are? How did we get to this place? That's something a counselor will do is help you know how you got to where you are. Because the how affects the now. If you, you need to understand how you got somewhere to know how to live now. The how will always affect the now. The how gives insight into the now, or even just from a self-awareness standpoint. Sometimes if you go in for counseling yourself, or if you're just thinking about your own life, it's important to know, how did I get to where I am? I remember my mom, um, if, if you've been coming for a little while, you know that I'm kind of a list junkie. I love the best movies, or the best donuts, or the best uh, tacos, and I'm just kind of a list junkie. And my mom, once, she, I remember having this conversation with her, and she was talking about all these lists that she has, and, all, and I was like, that's why I'm like that. That's why I'm so messed up. It's your fault, mom. It's your lists that made me like this. And you need to understand your history or how you got somewhere it begins to explain where you are, even when you think about world conflict right now in Israel and Hamas. And why is there such conflict? What's going on? Well, it's helpful to understand the history of how something got to where it is because it helps you with the now to know how do we get out of this or to know what do we do or to know what's the purpose, all those kinds of things. The how gives you insight into the now. And so that's why we're looking at today, how does someone get become a Christian? Or how does Jesus's work of salvation and redemption get applied to someone's life? 
When you know, when you really know how you got to where you are, when you know how you became, if you are a Christian, it will help give you a deeper understanding of who God is. It'll help give you a, a deeper purpose of how we are to live. It'll help give you direction and hope and assurance. So how does someone become a Christian? How does someone get the work that Jesus did? That's what we're going to explore today. And we'll start with just this question. What does God do to apply salvation? So God saves. That's what we talked about last week. I can't go over all that again, but God saves. And then how does he apply that salvation to us? Or how does someone become a Christian? And theologians will call this verse I'm going to show you, they will call it the golden chain because it just shows all the steps or all the links that leads to the final stage. And here's what it says in Romans 8, 29 to 30. It says, for those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, you see this progression, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Now, this isn't every single thing, but these are the major things that God does in someone's life. Sometimes this is called the ordo salutis, which is Latin for the order of salvation. Now, here's the first piece that he says, that those he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, this sometimes is controversial, this word predestination or the word election that God chooses who he will save, that he predestines who he will save. This can be a controversial doctrine, and yet it's all throughout the Bible. If you were here in the beginning of the year when we looked at Ephesians, it talks about he chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world. Before anyone did anything bad or good, God chose us. He predestined us to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself. Or in Thessalonians, it says, for we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full assurance saying, we know that God has chosen you because of the results, because you came to know him. So over and over and over again in the Bible, this, and I'm just giving you a few samples, it uses this language that God elects us or chooses us. Now, this is really important. Because if you don't understand this, if you don't believe this, without this doctrine, it's very easy to be self-righteous. It's very easy to be self-righteous because you have to ask, how did I become a Christian? Well, I really did the work. I studied hard. I learned. I, I made a commitment to really explore spirituality and Christian things and and I really decided to give my life to Jesus, or I really decided to follow God and forsake all these things. And, and ultimately, if it's on you, I'm not saying that if you believe this, that you're, you're just this arrogant jerk. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that. But ultimately, the seeds of that are there because you ultimately believe, I am a Christian. I am saved because of something that I did. Whereas the Bible says, All those that are Christians, all those that are saved, they were chosen. They were elected. They were predestined. It puts it upon God, which really helps if you struggle with self-righteousness. It really helps if you struggle with it's all on me, and I'm the one that carved it out. I'm the one that decided it. It also really helps in your view of other people, because if you look at other people, 
If you're a Christian and you look at other people that are not Christians, it can be easy to feel like they're dumb, they don't get it. Why are they so uncommitted? Why don't they just do the work? Why don't they just go to church? Why don't The Bible says you should have a humility. The only way that you are here is because God predestined you, because God chose you. Now, this I know brings up a bunch of different questions and things, and we're not going to get into that unless you want it to be a two-hour sermon. We can take a vote, but the plan is not to get into that. But it does give a humility. It also gives a boldness. It gives a boldness because, listen, if you look at your friends that are not Christians, and maybe even if you look at yourself, if you're not a Christian, and you go, I don't know. I don't know if they could ever become a Christian. What would it take for them to become a Christian? Man, I don't know any argument that would work. I don't know any life situation that would work. I don't know. And all of those things were saying, yeah, all of, I couldn't do it. This circumstance couldn't do it. But we're not saying, what could God do? Could God grab someone's heart? Could God change someone? And so if you understand that God is the one that elects, God is the one that predestines, it actually gives a great boldness to share your faith. Because you say, it, it's not how great, you might share your faith with someone and say, hey, uh, blah, 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 and it sounds so dumb, and then say, man, wow, I need Jesus. You go, how? wow, I guess I'm really good at this. Well, no, not really. It's just that God can do things God can work in people's lives. It gives you a great boldness. It gives you a great hope for people also. I know sometimes I've looked at people's lives and think, thought, man, I, I don't know. How, how, what, what could ever happen? It gives a great hope that it's not the man-made circumstances and things, but it's God's work that saves people. God elects people. That's the first step. And then the second thing that God does to apply salvation, it says that those he predestined, he also called. Theologians will call this effectual calling. And the Bible uses this language a bunch throughout, where it says God chooses people, and then he calls people to himself. Or it will say, like this, and Peter, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you, out of darkness into his marvelous light. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Or in Acts, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Or one last one, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. That's Jesus speaking. So over and over again, you get this language of God calling people. Sometimes, most of the time, probably today, when we use the language of calling, we mean our vocation or God called me into this position. But usually when the Bible uses the language of calling, it has to do with this salvation sense that God calls people to himself or God draws people to himself. People are living in darkness and God says, come here. And the way that God calls people is not the way that you call your dog. Because sometimes you call your dog, Fido, come here. And I, does anyone even name their dog Fido anymore? We got to bring back Fido. Rover, come here. And the dog just goes, you know, doesn't do anything. Come here. That's not how, or sometimes with your kids. Like, hey, come upstairs. My mom, my mom used to go. That, that was the signal for us to come upstairs. And a lot of times we'd be too busy playing Goldeneye or Mario Kart or whatever on N64, and we wouldn't come upstairs. 
That's not the way it works with God. When God calls us, it's more like an alarm clock. When you're asleep and the alarm clock goes off, and it wakes you up. That is what God's voice is like. It calls you out of darkness into light. It calls you from death to life. It calls you from where you are into relationship with him. That's why the Bible calls this effectual calling, or excuse me, theologians call it effectual calling, because there's a general calling where people can hear, repent, come to Jesus, and ignore it, but there is God's effectual call for those that he has elected that their heart is woken up and comes to him. Now, this word comes through other people. It's usually not, yes, God could send an angel or God could do all sorts of things, but it's usually not that. Usually the word comes through other people. God sends messengers out. That's why in 2 Thessalonians, it says he called you to this salvation through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. People are called through other people. They're called through you as Christians. They're called through pastors and preachers. They're called through people that share the gospel. So it's not just this independent thing that God does. God always chooses to use people. So if you look at other people's lives sometimes, and sometimes as Christians we do this, maybe trying to be humble, but really it's most of the time cowardice. We say, well, if God wants to save him, he'll do it. And God says, no, if I want to save him, I'm going to use you. I want to use people in my mission. They were called through the gospel, as the gospel is explained to people. Not just God, not just do you believe in God. That's not what it is, but it comes as people are explained that we are sinners. Some of the stuff we've talked about already. We are sinners who reject and ignore God that the penalty of sin is death and separation from God, but God has sent his son Jesus to save us. This is the explanation of the gospel that's given, that we are sinful people, and because of that, we're separated from God, and yet God sent Jesus to save us, to die in our place, to bring us life with him. So this gospel has to be explained to people. That's how the call comes, but it's not just that facts are explained. It is also that an invitation is given. So the effectual calling comes as an explanation is given, but also as an invitation is given. That's why you'll see language like this all through the Bible. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, come to me. So there's an explanation of the gospel, but there's also this invitation that goes out where Jesus says, come to me, I want you. I love, and this is all over, but at the end of the Bible, just there's only a few more verses and sentences after this. So this is at the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. It says, both the spirit and the bride say, come. This is God speaking. Come, and the church speaking. Come, let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. The whole Bible basically ends with an invitation. 
saying, I've explained to you who I am. I've explained to you the work of salvation I've done. I've explained to you the work that I've done to bring you. Come, come, come. That is Jesus calling out. And listen, even right now, Jesus calls out. If you're, if you're not a Christian, Jesus is calling out to you. The whole Bible is an invitation to say, I want you. Come. So the effectual call comes as the gospel is explained. You have to know what it is. And as an invitation goes out, and then this call also comes along with assurance, which is great. Where he says, therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. Saying, if you do come, if you receive this call, it will be effective. Your sins will be wiped out. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Jesus is saying, if you come, I'm I'm calling out to you. If you come, the assurance I give you, your sins will be wiped out, and I will never cast you out. I love this. It's not like, hey, if you come, we'll see what happens. One time, uh, I wish I remembered the name of this place because I want to throw shade at him, but there was this uh, smoothie place that said, uh, it's in Wheat Ridge, I think on 38th, so don't go there. <clears throat> Unless you're the owner, I'd love to talk to you and get my refund. But there was, there was this advert, there were, they had like these ads saying, free smoothies till three o'clock. It's like, all right. So they're like, come, come get the smoothies, free smoothies till three o'clock. Sounds great. My whole family goes in, like my whole family, cousins, aunt, no, I'm just joking. So we, we, my family comes in to get free smoothie. It's 245. They go, say, sorry, we're, we're done at 3. I go, yeah, it's 2.45. Go, yeah, but we're done at 3. Like, I don't, how, how many times are we going to, it's 2.45. Yeah, but the thing ends at 3. And I, I probably did that back and forth a handful of times and then was like, this is, this is ridiculous. You invited me to come, and yet, maybe I'm being extreme, now you're casting me out, you know? <laughs> Now you are not giving what you assured me I would get if I came. Now, that might be a silly illustration, but sometimes I think we can feel that way about God. There's this explanation of the gospel. There's this invitation, come to me, come to me. And yet we're still a little like, okay, I'll come, but what's actually going to happen? Is this really, is it too good to be true? Is there fine print? Is there, hey, sorry, we stopped saving people at 245, you know? He didn't, and it's three, so uh, we need 15 minutes to look at our phones or what, what? I don't know. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So listen, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you heard the explanation of the gospel, you heard Jesus's invitation to you, and you came, you will never be cast out. You will never be cast out. It doesn't matter if you have a bad day. It doesn't matter what suffering you go through. It doesn't matter what your life looks like, where it it feels like God's not there. He will never cast you out. And if you are not a Christian, he is calling to you saying, come, come, come. And he will never cast you out. This is effectual calling. He offers salvation. He invites you and he never takes it back. And then the next step in the chain is regeneration. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again. So regeneration has to do with giving life, new birth, new spiritual life given. Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
or in Ephesians, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us made us alive with Christ. Even though you were, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. See the Bible's, or sorry, another one, by his, I'll go back to that one in a second. So the Bible talks about regeneration or the giving of new spiritual life. Now, this is so intertwined with effectual calling. It is distinct, and yet it's not as if, it's hard to say, well, which one of these kind of came first? They really happen simultaneously, that you are called by God, and that gives you life, which is what the next verse says. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And that's said all throughout, that God's word comes to us, and when God's word comes to us, effectual calling, it gives us birth. It gives us life. It's like creation where God speaks and creation exists. God speaks and life exists. That is what happens spiritually speaking. That God calls you, he speaks to you, and life then gets created in you. New spiritual life gets created. That's why the language of born again or made alive is so important. Because Christianity is not, sometimes we just think of it as this choice. I've decided to become a Christian. But I've never met a baby that said, I decided to be born. When we do baby dedications, the baby doesn't grab the mic and say, well, yes, I would like to thank myself. I chose to be born. That, that doesn't happen. It, they are given life. That's why the Bible uses that language of born again. Something happened to you. Christianity is not just a, a decision or a direction of like, I'm trying to follow Jesus. Christianity is a condition. And you might go, yeah, I know it is. These weirdos, you know. It's a condition or a position. It's something you have. It's something that's happened to you. You are given life. You are made alive. Dead people don't decide. Dead people are given life. This is what the Bible calls regeneration. And it's so important because sometimes when I talk to people, people will say something like this. Well, I, you know, I've always been a Christian. That isn't true. No one in this room, if you're a Christian, has always been a Christian. That's impossible. Because dead people are made alive. And people are born again. You don't get to say, I was born, well, when I was physically born, I was just born again. Well, no. The Bible says that people become Christians, that they are made alive, that they are given a new birth, that life has to come to you, that you have to be called. Now, I know this can be tricky because if you grew up in a Christian home, you might say, well, I don't know when that happened. I kind of just was always going to church. Or, and, and, and I understand that. I'm not saying you had to have a moment in a dark alley when you were on your knees you know, saying, God, help me, and, and lightning came. I'm not saying that that has to happen. It's just that the Bible says that people become, they are called. They're called out of darkness to light, that they are made alive. So you may, if you, if you say, I've always been a Christian, what you might mean is I always went to church growing up or I had Christian parents. Some people even mean I live in a Christian country or something more like that. Maybe you even mean, I, I've always believed in God. That's not the same thing as being called from darkness to light. It's not the same thing from receiving spiritual life and birth. Now, you, you may not know the exact moment that that happened to you. 
That's okay. I'm not saying you need to be able to mark it on the calendar. You may not know that exact moment that it happened to you, especially if you grew up in a Christian home. It can be harder for kids. For adults, usually there is a discernible time where you go, yes, something changed in me at that point. But it is important to understand that God gives spiritual life in a moment. How do you know that's happened to you? What difference does it make? How do you know if you've actually gone from death to life? How do you know if you actually receive, if you were actually born again? How do you know? Well, the Bible speaks to this as well. And there's a lot of different things we could look at. But one thing Jesus says is a good tree can't produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. Sometimes people will say something like, hey, you can't judge me. Well, actually, Jesus says, you can. No one would go, you know, if I, I, I've got a plum tree in my yard. If I was like, oh, I love this apple tree. You know, this is such a great apple tree. No one, you, you, can't, you can't say that. If I say to the plum tree, Mr. Plum Tree, you're an apple tree, or you're not an apple tree, and the plum tree wants to be an apple tree, the plum tree couldn't, maybe you're confused, the plum tree, the plum tree couldn't, I'm confused, the plum tree couldn't say, we've got speaking trees, we got all sorts of weird stuff. The plum tree can't say, don't judge me, I'm an apple tree. No. False. If the plum tree has a bunch of rotten plums on it, the plum tree can't say, don't judge me, I'm a good plum tree. No, false. Jesus says, you will recognize them by their fruit. So just because somebody says, I'm a Christian, doesn't mean that they've actually received spiritual life. It doesn't actually mean that they've gone from death to life. People can claim all sorts of things. But Jesus says, you will know them by their fruit. That's how you know. Or you go to the book of 1 John, and it says this, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed, the word of God, God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. See how it links these together. If you have been given spiritual life, if you've been born again, it is impossible. Not just you shouldn't do it. You cannot keep on sinning because you have new life in you. You are not that person. You're not a dead person anymore. It's by necessity a new person is created. That doesn't mean that you do not sin ever. The same book, 1 John says, if anyone says he doesn't sin, he's a liar. Truth's not in him. But it's different. This is talking about making a practice of sinning or keep on sinning. If you are living a life saying, I'm just going to keep on sinning. Oh, yeah, I said a prayer once. Oh, yeah, I became a Christian when I was a kid. Oh, yeah, I've always. That is not what the Bible says. It says you can't. You can't keep on going. It's impossible. You've been born. You're a new person. This is important because some people falsely believe that they are Christians and they actually are not Christians. They've actually never received the spiritual life that God gives. And I don't say that to scare you or to make you freak out. It's actually, if, if, you're, if you're unsure and you look at your life, the answer is to go to Jesus, to say, okay, do I understand the gospel? Have I actually responded to his invitation to come? Have I actually, have I actually come to him? Or am I just saying, yeah, I grew up in a Christian family, or yeah, I believe in God, or yeah, he said, I don't got anything against Jesus, so by default, I'm a Christian. It's not the same thing. 
And I'll tell you this, and I've talked to people where this is true in their life, and maybe some of you, maybe some of you this will resonate with. For some people, your lack of love for other people, your lack of power in your life, your lack of change in your life isn't because you just need to try harder or do better. It's because you actually are dead. And I'm not trying to say that in a mean way, but you are dead trying to live spiritually alive. But the Bible would say you need to be brought to life and then you may find, wow, it's actually easier to change. It's actually easier to love people. It's actually easy to want to follow Jesus. It's actually easy to want to come to church. It's actually easy to want to obey God. I'm not trying to just make this dead thing move. I'm alive now. For some people, your struggle isn't just you got to do better. It's actually you need to respond to Jesus and receive salvation. And he freely gives. So this is what the Bible will call regeneration. Have you received that? Have you received God's work of salvation? He elects, he calls, he regenerates. And listen, all this is from God. All of it is from God. You can't do any of it alone. You can't do any of this by yourself. You can't create any of this. God elects, he calls, he gives life, all because of his grace. The more you see your history and how you got to where you are, if you are a Christian, the more you see your history, the more that you begin to trust God. Because sometimes it's easy just to look at all the bad things in our life. It's easy to, oh, here's another problem. Here's another thing. Oh, here we go again. Just kind of look at all the negative stuff and feel like, oh, life, woe is me. Life is hard. Sometimes it's easy to live in that place. But what the Bible wants to encourage you with, and this is the beginning. You've probably heard this verse because it's famous, but this is the beginning of what I was just kind of walking you through. It says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Then it goes into those who he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified. But the point of that, the reason that it has this at the beginning is to say, listen, God has always been working for you. Even before you were born, God has always been on your side. God has always been working for you. Before the foundations of the world, he predestined, then he called you, then he justified you. Before anything, God's always been working in your life. So it's supposed to give a great comfort to say, man, I know all things because of the cosmic story of history, because of how I even got here, God is working for me. It's supposed to be a great comfort to say, man, it might feel like things in my life aren't going well, but I have a God that's been working for me all along the way before I was even born. Every step of the way, God's been working for me, for my good. Wouldn't, wouldn't you love somebody that said, hey, I'm reporting for duty. Yes, what are you here for? I am here solely to work for your good. Excellent, that's great. And if that's, they just said, I'm, whatever I'm doing, it's for your good. Like, wow, that would be great. And, and let's make it even better. They have all the money in the world. Oh, well, that's pretty nice. They have all the wisdom in the world, okay? They have all the power in the world. And they say, I am working for your good. If you're a Christian, that's actually what you have. You have a God that says, I have always been and will always be working for your good. This is what God does to apply salvation. Now, what is our response to that? 
what is our response to God's application of salvation? And normally, what we, what we call this is conversion, which really has two sides to the same coin. We talk about conversion. It's got two sides, faith and repentance, which are in some ways the same thing, but they have some nuance to them. Our response to what God does is faith. The Bible says, how then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher, with a working mic? How can they hear about him? How can they hear about him? The Bible says you have to be able to believe that comes as you hear about him, which means we have to have certain knowledge of who he is. Faith includes knowledge of the facts. You can't say, I'm a Christian. What do you believe? Well, you know, I just kind of believe in a universal spirit of love, and I believe Jesus was a good teacher. Well, that's not what the facts are. I can't say, I'm a vegan, and this steak is really good, and I really enjoy lobster tail, and I really like... That's not what the facts are. That's not what it means. You have to actually hear about him and about... You have to believe in actual truth of what is revealed. You don't get to make it up yourself. So faith is, first, knowing what the facts are. That's part of why we're going through this series. That's part of why the creeds of the church are actually really important. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. It's things that Christians across denominations, even between Catholics and Protestants, that people actually all agree on. It's important to say, what is it? What are the facts? And then to actually agree with those facts. Not to just get it right on the quiz. People, you could, be a, you could get all the facts right about what Christianity is, but not actually agree with them. You have to actually agree with what is true. It's not enough to just know truth. You actually have to know it and agree with it. That's why the Bible says this. You believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe. And they shudder. Such an important verse. Because it says just knowing what is true is not enough. Demons know what is true. More than most of us. Demons know what is true. They've been around for a long time. They've seen all the events. They don't struggle with faith. They don't have any doubt. Did it really happen? They were there. They saw it. They believe. Even the demons believe. They hear the creed and say, yeah, that's true. So you need to know the facts. You need to agree with the facts. But that's not actually enough either. You need to have trust. You need to rest in the truth. Not just know it. Not just agree with it. But actually to rest in it. This is what the Bible says, and it uses language like this. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, it's actually interesting. It doesn't just say everyone who believes him, believes in him. And to believe in means you are putting your trust in someone. Not just I believe he existed. Not just I believe that's true, but to believe in. I'm putting my trust in in this person. That's why trust is actually probably a better word for us today than even faith or belief, because just the way that we use those in our culture is kind of warped. We say, oh, I've got faith that the Broncos are going to win. Well, your faith is misplaced, brother, right? I've got, <laughs> I've got faith, 
And with faith, a lot of times, sometimes people even say stupidity things like, just have faith in faith. What is that? Just have faith in faith in faith, huh? I don't even know. Is it 245? Is it 3 o'clock? 245? Faith. Just have faith. What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's just like an irrational belief. Or sometimes people will say believe, and they just mean the facts. I believe in God. I believe that Jesus existed. But that's not what the Bible means. It means to have trust. That's why the Bible also uses language like receive. He came to his own, talking about Jesus, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. Receiving, trusting, or when it says things like coming, coming to me, the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. That kind of language has more to do with I'm trusting in him. I'm resting in him. Not just I believe facts, but I'm, I'm coming to him. That's why my favorite definition of faith comes from the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin, who says this. Now we shall possess a right definition. By the way, I need to grow that beard. Now we shall possess a right definition of faith if we call it a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence, or that means his love. So of God's love toward us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Calvin says, here's what faith is. It's not just that you believe certain things. It's not just that you know certain things. It's that you have a firm and a certain knowledge that God loves you. Now, that might sound so basic and so childish, but Calvin says that's actually what faith is, which is different from the demons, which is different from just being able to check it on the box. It's saying, I know God loves me. That creates a trust. That creates a rest. That creates a freedom to say, my faith is not just facts. It's not just, do I believe a man named Jesus of Nazareth existed? Do I believe he died? Do I believe he wrote? It's not that. It's sealed upon my heart. I know God loves me. That's what faith is. Do you know that? Do you know a firm and certain knowledge? God loves me. If so, you come to him, you rest in him, you receive him. That's what faith is. So yes, you have to know the facts. I'm a sinner. The penalty for sin is death. I need saving. But it's also the receiving. Jesus paid it for me. He loves me. I receive it. It's a firm and certain knowledge. My grandpa, before he died, he, he said to me, I believe Jesus died. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe God's, he was able to check all the boxes. I believe all this. Just don't think he did it for me because I could never receive that. My grandpa lived a hard life. He, he escaped from jail. He killed people. I mean, he lived a really hard life. So he believed every fact. He knew it was all true. He just hadn't received it because he couldn't believe that it could be true for him. And towards the end of his life, he did. But that is so different to say, do you just know the truth or do you know God loves me? It's for me. This is what faith is which is what God wants to give to you. He wants to release you from your own self-sufficiency, from your own trust in you and say, rest upon me. That's the first side of the coin. The second side of the coin is repentance. These go together. 
I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God, Paul is speaking, and faith in our Lord Jesus. And I can only give you a few samples of this, but this is what is included all throughout the Bible. Repentance and faith, repentance and faith. It's two pedals on a bike. It's two sides of the same coin. It's peanut butter and jelly. It's apples and pie. I don't know. Keep keep going, okay? He went into all the vicinity of the Jordan. This is about John the Baptist proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Or in Acts, as Peter preaches his first sermon after Jesus uh, resurrects, it says, uh, he, he tells all about Jesus. And when the people hear this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? So he basically tells them this whole sermon says, you killed Jesus, the Messiah came to you and you killed him. And they're like, oh crap, what do we do? What should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, 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 repent. Or even this, even though it doesn't use the language repent, I showed you this invitation, but the calling is also not just, hey, come to me, we're going to hang out. Come to me, take my yoke upon you, learn from me. That is, come to me and reorient your life with me. It's not just, hey, do you love me? Do you believe in me? It's come to me, and now the yoke is an ox, you know, that has those two things on the neck. I should have put a picture, but those two things that go on the neck. And it's saying, come, learn from me, walk with me. I'll teach you, have a new way of life. So faith, we believe who God is and what he says. Repentance is we turn away from the sin and the dead ways of living. Here's what repentance is. It's not just feeling bad that you sin. Anybody can do that. It's not just feeling bad that you sin. It's not just saying a prayer. Repentance is turning our whole self to God. We're going this way, we turn this way. That's why this is a great little illustration. Uh, This is not from me, but repentance and faith, two sides of the same coin. I know this is simple, but it's, you're not a Christian, you're going this way with your sin. Jesus says, come to me. Repentance and faith is, oh, I now believe who Jesus is. So I'm not going that way, now I'm going this way. That's why it's two sides. You don't repent if you don't have faith, but you don't really have faith if you don't repent. You can't say, yes, I trust in Jesus and I know he loves me and, and, I'm, and, I, and I understand I'm a sinner and I'm deserving of condemnation, but Jesus saved me and I'm going to keep sinning. That doesn't make any sense. It's not reality. Which, let me tell you this. And I don't know if you've heard this out there or if you've been told it yourself, but I have to tell you this. If you have been told that you're a Christian just because you have faith, and I'll put it in quotes, just because you have faith in Jesus, that is false teaching. It's a lie. It's demonic. It's not true. It is a false assurance of faith or Christianity or salvation that is wicked. And there are many people, many people that will tell you, believe in Jesus. He's great. He's awesome. He'll meet your needs. Believe in Jesus. And people will say, yeah, it doesn't matter. They're still sinning. They're still doing all this stuff. But, oh, man, they love Jesus. They don't love Jesus. And, and I don't say this to you to be mean. You don't love Jesus. And you don't actually have faith if you are committed to your sin while at the same time saying, I have faith. That's not what faith is. Faith is trust in Jesus The other side of the coin is because I trust in Jesus, how could I ever have sin be my master still? I'm coming to him and I'm taking his yoke upon me. I'm repenting and I'm being baptized. 
because I trust in him and I want sin gone from me. It's a turning of your whole life to God because you're putting your whole trust in God and what he's done for you. You must leave your sin. Have you done that? Or do you fall back on, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to Sunday school. I've always believed in God. That's not what it means to be a Christian. And Jesus wants to give you something so much better. I don't say that to try to berate you or be mean to you. I say it because I want you to have the life that Jesus actually gives. Because it's good and beautiful and he actually wants to give you life. If you're not a Christian, today Jesus is calling to you. Today Jesus is giving you a calling, an invitation and saying, come to me. Turn away from your sin and come to me. He's calling you. And if you are a Christian, that's what you've been given and received. This is how we begin the Christian faith. This is what our response is, faith and repentance. But like a plant, if you, if you plant a seed, when you plant a seed, it needs water, it needs sun. That's what will initially give that plant life. Water, sun. I think there's something at light. Well, that's the sun. Water, sun, something else. It needs those two things at least. Dirt, I don't know. Okay. It needs those things for photosynthesis. Okay, I'm not in elementary school anymore. It needs those things. And the same things it needs at the beginning is what it needs to keep growing. The same things that will give it life to begin with is the same thing it needs to keep on growing, which is the truth for you and me. That what made you a Christian is God's work in your life and you responding with faith and repentance to him. But the same thing that will keep you growing as a Christian are those same things. Putting your trust in him, turning away from your sin. Putting your trust in him, turning away from your sin. That's why Martin Luther said that all of life is repentance. It's not just one moment here. It's all of our life. Two pedals on a bike. Faith, repentance, faith, repentance, faith, repentance. That keeps us moving. The same thing that gave you life is the same thing that will help you experience the life that he bought for you. Now, final thing here. What results when God applies this salvation to our life or what is given to us or what benefits come. God applies this salvation to us through his electing work and his call and his regeneration. We respond in faith and repentance. The only reason we can respond that way is because of what God has done, by the way. Don't get those orders wrong. It's not that we have faith and repentance and then God gives life. It's that God does that work in electing and calling and regenerating us, which enables us to actually have faith and repent. And then what happens? What's the gift? What's the benefit? What, what results? There's two things that I'll give to you here. The first is a word we've looked at a little bit in previous things because there's so much overlap in a lot of this, but the first is that he justifies us. That's kind of the next step in the chain. And we won't get to the glorified one today. We'll do that later. But he predestines, he calls, and if he calls, he justifies. He justifies. Or Here's another verse. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is a legal word. It's a legal word. Think about a judge and them bringing justice. It's a legal declaration. The hammer comes down. That wasn't that loud. Need to be, how, do, how do I make that loud? I don't know. Turn it up. No, okay, all right. It's a legal declaration where God says the penalty of sin has been paid. It's It's done. So sentence served. 
The penalty of sin has been paid. Past, present, future. The declaration, that's what justification is. It's a declaration of not guilty. Okay, it's been paid. If you've ever, I don't know if you've ever uh, maybe gone somewhere and someone tried to charge you for something, but you already paid for it, but you had a receipt. So it's already been paid. This happened to me yesterday. Okay, it's already been paid. And so the declaration is that you are not guilty. Sins paid for, complete. And the declaration is that you are now righteous. We've looked at this before, that you are righteous now because of Jesus. So think about it this way from a financial standpoint. Sin gives us a debt, the Bible talks about, the wages of sin. You've been paid. Oh, great, what's my payment? Death. Oh, that's not what I was hoping for. So uh, sin gives you a debt. So I don't know if any of you have ever been bankrupt or if any of you have been in debt before or currently are in debt. You've got all this stuff. I can never pay this back. So much money. You're in debt. So what justification means is because of what Jesus has done, your debt is wiped free, not guilty, debt gone, nothing against you. <sighs> and what are you now in that moment? <sighs> Bankrupt. I've got zero, right? So that's nice. You got no debt, but you go to your bank and you got zero dollars in there. So you got to do some things to earn some credit. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says justification is debt gone. And you go into the bank, say, yeah, what's my balance? $10 billion. Oh, wow. That you are declared guilt-free and you are declared with a full account. That you are declared righteous. You are declared guilt-free and you are declared righteous. Perfect standing with God. A full account. You're not just at zero. You're a billionaire spiritually. You have everything. This is what justification is. This is why the, the reformers called this the great exchange. All of our sin goes to Jesus. All of his righteousness goes to us. And I've already kind of said this, but sometimes people will say, well, why, why is that true? Why, why is it that God says not guilty? Why is it that God says that? Why is it that you can have good standing with God? Some people are very unsure. Sometimes I'll ask people the question, if you died tonight, Stand before God. And he says, why should I let you in? What would you say? Sometimes people say, well, I, I, sometimes people don't know. I, I'm not sure what I would say. And if you're not sure where you stand with God, that's a scary place to be. Or sometimes people will say something like, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure why he should let me in, but I've tried really hard. I believe in him. I've tried to follow him, do the best of my ability to, to walk with him. That's a scary place to be also. The Bible says that you can have an absolute confidence where you stand with God. Not because of anything in you. Not also just because God's a nice person. Like, well, I hope he accepts me because I just hope he, I believe God's loving. No. The reason that you are justified is because of Jesus, which is why it says, the one who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Your faith in what Jesus did is counted or credited to you as righteousness. I am trusting what Jesus did. I'm not trusting what I did. I'm trusting what he did. And God counts my faith in Jesus as if I were righteous because I'm saying I'm with him. It's a beautiful truth that gives us absolute confidence. 
One time I was talking to a dirty cop. And you might say, well, never mind. I was going to make a joke that wouldn't be good. But <laughs> I was talking to a guy. And I don't mean this like I thought he was a dirty cop. He, he had done some illegal activity. He had done some bad things. And he said, man, I, I feel super guilty. And he had gotten fired from his job. There was other like court penalties that might come. I won't give it, give it to you everything that had happened with him. But he told me, I, I feel like I should just step out there and get hit by a bus. Like the only way to deal with what I, he knew what he had done was bad. And he said, I, I just feel like I should be hit by a bus. And I told him, you're right. You should be hit by a bus. Because what you're feeling is guilt that you deserve condemnation, that you deserve a penalty for your sin, that you deserve death for your sin. And you are right. But the beautiful truth is you don't have to. Jesus stood in front of the bus for you. And so now you are justified. He was waiting for the courts to decide. You are already in God's sight. If you receive what Jesus has done, if you put faith in, you are justified. You are declared righteous. You might still have to pay the, the, the earthly penalties, but you are justified before God. This is what it means. It's not just because I hope God's nice. It's not just, I'm not sure. Hopefully he'll, it's, I have confidence because of what Jesus has done. That's why the Bible actually says it would be unjust of God to condemn us now because he would be giving us double jeopardy. He would be making us pay the penalty twice. Jesus already did it. This is justification, which means this. If you feel guilty, if you've got sin, God wants to free you from that. And then the last gift that God gives to us, and there's more, but the last that I'll say here is adoption. I already read the first part of this, but he predestined us to be adopted as sons for himself. Or in 1 John, it says, see what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. This is really the heart of the gospel. Rescue and forgiveness is beautiful, but this is better. Because you can rescue someone, but it doesn't mean you adopt them. You can save someone, but it doesn't mean that you bring them into your family. Those are different things, right? You can go do uh, aid relief and, and help people out and, and where they're struggling, but it doesn't mean you actually bring them into your family. God says, I rescue you and I adopt you. I make you my own. I, I, I bring you to myself. That's so much better than just forgiveness. It's that he, he actually says, I want you in my family. Adoption is that God makes you his kids, which means, I mean, some of you are parents. It means when you are a child, you have all the legal rights that come with being a part of a family. You have an inheritance. You have a home to be a part of. You have brothers and sisters to be a part of. You've got affection from someone, not just they saved you. You've got affection. They actually delight in you. They want you. They care for you. They give you their name. They say, you belong to me. I'm working for your good. I want you. I'm glad you're here. They discipline you, but only because they love you, not to punish you, but to help you, to care for you. It's a con Salvation is a one, forgiveness is this one-time thing, but adoption is, you are living in my home. I'm giving you all that I have. You're not alone. That's why John says, see what kind of love that we should be called children of God. God didn't have to do that. He could have just saved us. He said, all right, you're all saved now. But he said, I want you as my children. I adopt you into my family. That's why this is so important. What we're doing here is not just a bunch of individuals 
that are trying to connect with God. That's why we want you to be members of a church is to be a part of a family where you have brothers and sisters. If you're a Christian, this is what you have. You have justification. You have adoption. God has given you these great gifts. So do you have worry in your life? Do you lack joy in your life? Do you complain and just kind of look at all the negative things in life? Are you unsure of the future? And and remember the gifts that have been given to you. I'm justified. I'm adopted. You remember those things. And even more, if you remember your history and how you got to where you are, what God did for you, and what he gives you, it helps you know how to live now. How does someone become a Christian? How does someone get salvation or the things that God has done for them? This is your history. And when we see this, when we see his commitment to us, his work for us, his grace towards us, his mercy towards us, his gifts to us, it helps build our confidence in him, our trust in him, our desire to turn from sin and to him. It helps that. So here's what this means. If you're a Christian, rejoice in what God's given you. We're going to take communion in just a moment. Communion is a time that Christians remember. I've been forgiven by the blood of Jesus, by his broken body and his blood shed for me. I've been forgiven and I've been given life. Remember as you take communion. If you're not a Christian, God is calling you. He's inviting you. He's inviting you to come to him. And you can, you can pray and just say, Jesus, I need your forgiveness. I want life with you. If you th- I'll say this for some of you. I don't know. If you thought you were a Christian until today, like maybe I'm not. Maybe I just believe some things, but I, I, don't, I actually don't have life. He's calling you too. He wants to give you life. Turn from and to. Receive rest. As you take communion, confess your sin. This is the ongoing pattern in the Christian life. Remember he forgives you. Ask for God's help to rest in him. Pour out your heart to him and the things that you are struggling with. And remind yourself of the truth of what he says. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. and Thank you that you make us alive. Thank you for truth of our history for those of us that are Christians of how we got here not by what we have done but by what you did thank you build our faith build our confidence in you whatever it is that we're facing help us to remember who you are and what you've done in your name Jesus amen